Over the next few weeks, we're going to be starting a new series we're calling In the Middle. And each of these weeks, we're going to be looking at the different things that are coming up in May, such as Memorial Day, Mother's Day, high school graduations. We also have some new residents who are coming to join the staff here at Wellspring that are starting in the month of May, and we're excited to welcome them. We're going to be looking at all these things over the next few weeks, and we're going to be looking at all of the decisions that these individuals have made, all the accomplishments that we get to celebrate with them. All the journeys they're on that we get to stop and recognize their acceptance of. And we're going to stop and and focus on what it means to be in the middle of not just those things, but all of our lives. See, all those things have one thing in common is that they have accepted or are on a journey based off a decision they made or based off the seasons of life that they're in. And for anybody who is a follower of Jesus, you have started a journey, one where you are walking in obedience to where he leads. And it's in that time, it's while we walk along this path of faith in our obedience, that we have spiritual highs and mountaintops where we get to see what God is doing more clearly. We get to understand our purpose more deeply and we get to feel connected with our God in a a very powerful way. That happens on the journey. But also on the journey, not only do you have times where you're in the mountains, but you have times where you're in the valleys. We have seasons of hardship, we have moments of anguish and struggle. We, we experience depression and anxiety on levels that are unmatched. As a student minister, I can tell you, just our students are facing so many difficult and different things that I promise none of us had to face when we were in middle school and high school. The amount of things that are happening in our world, in our lives, and in the midst of our story is heavy. And there's a certain heaviness to it. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at different characters in the Bible, different individuals that were caught up in the middle of their own story, that they were caught up in the middle of their own struggle, in the middle of their journey, and we're going to look and see what we can deem from those situations and those people on how we manage our time here in the middle of our own struggle or in the middle of our own story. So if you will, open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings in chapter 5. We're going to be there for the rest of our morning, so you can keep your Bibles open. 2 Kings chapter 5. This story looks at a military leader named Naaman. So as you open up your Bibles, uh, I'm going to begin in verse 1. Verse 1 says this. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him... The Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So this first verse teaches us a lot of very, very important information about the study we're looking at and the person we're looking at today. We learn four very important things about Naaman from this first verse. First, we learn that he's the commander of the army of the king of Aram. So typically when we, read, when we read the Bible, when we look at the Old Testament especially, who are God's people? What nation do God's people represent? Israel. So typically when we're looking in the Old Testament, we're reading the story and the history and literature of Israel. We're under the impression and this idea that Israel is always the main point of the story and is always the good guy in the story. But I promise you, as you read the Old Testament, you will find time and time again where Israel is not the good person in the narrative, the good nation in the narrative. And this is a story just like that. Naaman is the king of the army of Aram. Aram is the Hebrew designation for Syria. 
So he is the, one of the higher up military leaders in Syria. And at this point in Israel's history, Israel and Syria have fought and had great conflict multiple times. They found themselves in the middle of it time and time again. In fact, the king at this point in Aram, in Syria, he's notoriously known as the one who had helped in killing one of Israel's kings, King Ahab. So we're looking in on Naaman, a person who's a military leader of a nation that is not Israel. This is important because I think we still do that some today. We're sitting here wondering, where is God moving just in our lives? Or we look in the brokenness of the world and we assume that if God is not working here, then he's probably not working over there either. Uh, But that's something that we can deem from this story is God is working in and through different people and nations and places all throughout the world. You continue in verse one, it says, he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Again, this shows us that while a lot of us think God only interacted and worked with the nation of Israel in scripture, the reality is this scripture fights against that. And it, it says he's working through different nations and places. Naaman had been used by God before. It says that through Naaman, God delivered victory to Aram, which means that Naaman was somebody that God had used to bring victory before. But the the thing that we have the luxury of is we get to read this passage and see God used Naaman to bring those victories, right? We can see that. Naaman doesn't have the same luxury as we do to see his story on paper years later. So Naaman, at this point in the story, doesn't realize that there is a God who has moved in his life and moved in his story and brought those victories to this nation. He doesn't realize that. He doesn't know that yet. Go on, it says that he was a valiant soldier. There's another way that scripture says this where it it describes him as Naaman being a man of valor. And that's a huge title. That's a big deal. Because in scripture, there aren't a lot of people who are in the very exclusive club of men of valor. There are only so many people who are. That list includes Gideon in the book of Judges and also King David and a few other people. But Naaman is the only Gentile. He's the only non-Jewish person described in the scripture as a man of valor. And at this point in the life of Naaman, things are looking pretty good. He's high up in the military, which means he has a lot of money. He has a great home. He probably has one of the better places to live, either in or just outside of the palace. Naaman's living his best life. He's a strong and capable man of valor. He's respected. He has authority. He carries himself well. And he also is popular because he's brought a lot of victories to the nation. But as much as Naaman had going for him, everything, he had one major thing that worked against him. That's the end of verse 1 where it says he had leprosy. Leprosy being a disease which doesn't affect us as much today or our world as much today, but at the time it was a death sentence. It was a disease that caused sores and boils to form over your body. You would be losing hair and fingernails and eventually body parts. It was incredibly painful. It was an incredibly difficult way to die because it didn't happen quickly. And the world saw you differently because of it, because of how in because of how much it could spread, because of how easy it was for you to become a leper by being with a leper. Lepers were typically shunned. They were typically treated differently. Continue in verses two through three. 
It says, now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. See, we see that again. Syria and Israel are in conflict here. And they bring back a captive young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. She served in the house of Naaman. This girl, she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So I have an entire point that I'm going to get to through the story of Naaman this morning. But that point could really be made in a smaller scale about this young Jewish slave girl. So let me pause a moment and highlight how much I love hanging out with our students and with children and how much I love our ministries that allow us to get to do that and serve. Because if you're a parent, you know this, or if you're around kids and students a lot, you know this. They don't always know what they're saying, but every now and again, and again they say the most profound things you'll ever hear. And this is a story about a girl who went from a family who loved her in Israel. She knew the one true God. She went from comfort. She went from safety to being a slave in a nation that wasn't her own. She was on a massive detour in her life. And instead of saying, why me? She, she switched it around and said, okay, God, what now? But a lot of us, when we have a detour in our life, when we have a big change in our life, when we have something come up, a hardship, something we didn't expect, something that throws our life off course, spiritually or emotionally or financially, whatever it might be, we tend not to say, God, what now? Kyle Eidelman, he's the senior minister at Southeast in Louisville, Kentucky. He, he gave a sermon recently and he said this. He said, when we're on a detour in our lives, we all want to ask, how is this happening? As though a reason behind our tragedy or our detour will help, it won't. So instead of asking God, what's the reason for this? We should be asking God, what is your purpose in this? Or God, what are you trying to teach me in this? Because only then will we find worth and value in the detour. This young girl who went from safety to slavery, she didn't know why. She didn't intend for that to happen. It was a detour in her life that she did not see coming. But instead of saying, why me? She said, God, what now? And he used her in a massive way, but it was a really small step. It had implications that we'll see will change the rest of this man's life and the rest of the lives of any family and friends that he knows in his life. And it all started because this one girl who was in a place she didn't want to be spoke up and let God use her. She took a small step of obedience that became a bigger deal later. And we'll start, talk about that more in a bit. So end that tangent. In the same way as this girl, however, Naaman, who had everything going for him, he had a massive detour in his life. And that detour was his leprosy diagnosis. It was one thing he didn't know what to do with. It was the one thing he didn't have power over. His influence, his money, his everything could not make that go away. It says this starting in verses four through five. It's saying Naaman went to his master. He went to the king and he told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. So Naaman goes to his king and he says, hey, that, that nation we have conflict with, that we have a bad history with, this 12-year-old girl says there's a guy there who can heal me. You cool if I go? It's weird. 
It's a weird request. And all we learn from this part of the story is how valuable Naaman is to his nation. How valuable he is to Syria. How valuable he is to this king. Because this king is like, if it'll work, go. Because again, for leprosy, there was no other way. So Naaman left. He got a lot of money. Maybe not all of his money. Because again, he was very, very wealthy, most likely. But an undeniably large amount of money. And he makes his way to Israel to see the king of God's people. To see the king of Israel. Now, if we stop right here in the story, Naaman has no idea what God's ultimate purpose is. In fact, he doesn't know for sure that the God of Israel is the one true God or even exists. He only knows that he has a diagnosis that will leave him dead and he's desperate to find a cure. So he takes a small step out of desperation. And he takes one more and one more. And we're going to see where it leads him. So Naaman heads out to go and see the king of Israel. And this is what it says in 2 Kings 5, verse 7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, this is the letter from the other king, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. We see here that the king of Israel is not having it. He sees this as a threat. He sees this as a conflict to be. He sees a man who is looking for healing, but because of where this man comes from, because he is from an enemy nation, he assumes that it is a trap. He assumes it is something bad. But there are things, again, that we have the luxury of knowing that Naaman wouldn't have known. Because if I'm Naaman, and I've heard from this Jewish girl that there's a prophet who can help. So I go to my king, and he says, I'll write a letter of recommendation for you. And then he goes to the king of Israel, the king of God's people, who of all people, if there is a God in Israel and the God of Israel, you would expect this king to be the king who can help you. But instead, this this king shuts it down and gets angry and defensive. The reason being, at this point in history, Elisha, the prophet that everybody's referring to, and the king of Israel are at odds. And Elisha is begging and pleading in previous chapters and previous history for this king to start utilizing him to solve the nation of Israel's problems. Lean on God. Turn to God. Be obedient to God. This is Elisha the prophet's prayer and pleading with the king of Israel. But the king of Israel here isn't doing that. Naaman doesn't know any of this though. Naaman's just a leper trying to be cured. We continue on. Elisha hears about this in verse 8. It says, When Elisha, the man of God, the prophet that everybody's talking about, when he heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Here's Here's what we need to pick up from this. Naaman is banking on there being a prophet in Israel. Naaman has already heard of the prophet in Israel. So when Elisha is writing this letter to the king, when he goes to the king and says, tell him to come to me, tell him to come to my house, tell Naaman to follow me and come find me, he isn't saying this so that Naaman will know there's a prophet in Israel. He's saying it so the king of Israel will know that there's a prophet in Israel. He's twisting the knife a little bit to the king of Israel saying, you need to see what God is going to do through me. In the life of this guy. But for Naaman, this is just one more step in a really a story that's becoming more and more complicated. A story that is requiring more and more steps. So Naaman, he goes and he's on his way to find the prophet. 
And I wonder if at this point in the story, I wonder if Naaman is so frustrated at this because he has heard from a young Jewish slave girl. He has talked to one king. He has traveled a great distance and talked to another king. And now this king is saying no. And then, okay, fine, because there's a letter. Now you can go see the prophet. I bet Naaman, who is a leper, who is in suffering, who is seeking something simple, seeking an answer that should be simple. He's praying is simple. It's all becoming more and more complicated. Naaman is communicating a need and he keeps meeting more and more obstacles and steps. Church, when we're in the middle of our struggle, sometimes it feels like instead of finding the solution to the need we have or the thing our hearts are breaking for, instead of experiencing that, we often find one more step, one more challenge, one more obstacle. Naaman is right in the middle of a complicated situation that is, com- that is layered with drama between prophets and kings that he has nothing to do with. He doesn't even know about it all, but he's in the middle of it. And I bet that's frustrating to him. Because when we're already frustrated and more and more cooks in the kitchen come in, it, it, it layers it. It makes it an unbelievably frustrating. So last year we went up to CIY in Michigan and we get up there and last year we took 50 students to CIY. We're excited. This year we're taking 60 students to CIY. And a lot of that is because of how generous you've been. So I say that to say thank you again for you all. Uh, but last year we went up to Michigan and we get up there and I, I'm unloading the bus and I get in our dorm room and I get into mine and I realize that the dorm doesn't have any AC. There's no air conditioning in the dorm. Um, and and I do what any person in their right mind would do. I left all of the students where they were and I drive to the store. Um, I leave them and I, and I don't offer to get them fans or anything. They haven't earned that yet. Uh, but I need a fan. So I go to a local supermarket, which is Meyer, And there's not a lot of Meyer around here, but up north of the Ohio River, there's Meyer all over the place. Uh, and so I go to Meyer's and I buy this fan and I go back to the dorm room and I go to plug it in and the fan doesn't work. And I know what you're thinking. I tried eight more outlets. The fan doesn't work. I went to different rooms. I went to a different building. I almost bought a generator. This fan doesn't work. And so I'm thinking, I don't have any more time this week. I'll return it eventually. And I'll just go from there. And so end of the week comes and uh, I wake up really, really early on the last day because our bus is going to roll out at like 745 in the morning. We're trying to get ahead of it, get back here to Spring Hill. And so I go at like 6.30 to a Starbucks to pick up coffee for me and leaders because I'm cool like that. And, uh, and lo and behold, this Starbucks I chose to go to is right next to the Meyer. And I look on my phone and the Meyer's open. I'm like, great, I can return this, this fan while I'm at it. And so I take this fan and just like every supermarket on earth, uh, when you go too early in the morning, they decide they're only going to open half of it because they only open the one door on the one side. Um, which I think is really dumb because it's not like you have a half opening at six and then it's all open at seven. The whole store's open. They just decide one door's enough. Uh, so I go in that one door and I have this box fan. It's like 6.15 in the morning and I'm tired and I'm already like a really sarcastic person and me being really tired didn't help. Uh, so I go in and I have this fan and as, and as soon as I walk in the door, I see customer service desk is all the way on the other side of the store where that one door is and easily could have been opened and it's fine. <laughs> and so I go in and, and I, I walk all the way across the store. And as I'm walking across the store, I have this box fan. And this, this person who works at Meyer, this guy, he goes, hey. And so I stop in my tracks because it's loud and it's early. And he goes, are you returning that fan? And I'm like, yeah, actually, like it doesn't actually work. I wrote on it. 
uh, I'd love to return it. And he goes, can't return anything until 10 a.m. And I'm like, bummer, you know, like, all right, then see ya. And so I, I take the fan, I walk out. I get way too far away for him to stop me again. Like he should have stopped me sooner. So there's like an awkward distance. And I like, and he goes, hey, wait. And I stop. And he goes, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm leaving. And he goes, I thought you wanted to return a fan. And so I'm like, I bring the fan back. I'm like, I'm like, I would love to return this fan. I don't want this fan. It doesn't work. And he goes, well, it doesn't open until 10 a.m. to return it. And I'm like, yes, which is why, which is why I'm leaving. And he goes, okay. And I go to walk out again and I get a, I, I don't, he doesn't let me get as far away. He goes, sir, where are you going? And I'm like, out. <laughs> and he goes, do you want to return the fan? And I said, more than anything, more than anything. And he goes, I thought that's what you wanted. And I'm angry at this point. And I go, sir, do you think I'm going to wait until 10? Did you think I was going to wait here? And he goes, I don't know. Maybe. He goes, you're, he goes, what do you, he goes, I just want to know, what are you going to do with it? And I'm like, I'll return it to another store. And I walk out and I'm on my way out again. I'm like, I'll just return it to another store. It's fine. And this guy, I kid, church, I kid you not. This, <laughs> this man goes, you think you can just walk into a Walmart or a Target and turn that fan back in? That's not how it works. You can't just go to any other store. And I go, I go, this is a Meyer, right? And he goes, yes. And I'm like, is this the only Meyer? And he goes, no. And I said, so I'm going to take this fan and I'm going to go to a different Meyer and I'm going to return it for my money and you will get the fan. And he goes, but it doesn't open until 10 a.m. I left and I never returned the fan. Uh, Scott Hancock actually ended up taking the fan from me, fixing it and bringing it back because he's a good guy. But guys, I, I have never been more silent in a conversation, more furious, more fuming. It was not funny to me. I was thinking, what are you talking about? How do you talk to people usually? How do you think anything through this? I was mad. I was angry. I was frustrated because all I want to do is return a fan to Meyer, which I'm glad there are no Meyer around here for that very reason. But I think me and like Naaman and maybe like some of us, we get so exhausted by the process because there are so many conversations and ideas and unhelpful things that pop up in our lives. So many people who pop up in our lives who we hope are helpful and are just not. And I don't think this guy at Meyer had any ill intent towards me in my life. And I'm sure when he tells this same story to his coworkers, he's like, I dealt with a moron this morning. <laughs> but it's not our job to understand how everything works, how everything is going to go, exactly what the end looks like, no matter how frustrating it is. And at this point, Naaman has talked to so many different people and he has heard so many different things. He's never even seen this prophet, but he's traveled so far. I wonder if he's just tired of it. I think Naaman's probably exhausted because what Naaman wanted to do is something that we all want to do too. We want to skip the middle and we want to get to the miracle. So many of us want to do that in the midst of our struggle today, in the midst of our lives. We want to skip the middle part. 
The complicated part, the layered part, the part that we don't understand, the part that church, I'm sorry, we may never understand fully. We want to skip the middle and get to the miracle. But Naaman, just like us, he doesn't understand the, the other important things God is doing through his journey. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know that through this entire story, through Naaman doing this exactly the way that God intended it be done, that the king of Israel is going to be able to see God more clearly. Naaman doesn't know that, but we get to. He doesn't see the bigger picture. And church, when we're in the midst of our own struggle, the bigger picture is not on our minds. We want to skip the middle and get to the miracle. But we don't get to do that. And there are so many things that are just so mundane in that. Go talk to this person, then they'll tell you to go talk to this person. Write a letter, bring some money. There's so many steps that seem meaningless. But again, instead of asking, God, how is this going to help? Say, God, why do you have me where I'm at? What's the purpose here? And that could be how it works for us too, even when we don't understand the big picture. God does his best work, church, in the middle. That's where he does his best work, is in the figuring it out, in the walking, in the in-between. Keep reading in verse 9. So Elisha has written this letter. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, said, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Church, can you imagine after you have talked to one person who has sent you to a king, who has sent you to another king, who received a letter from the prophet you're trying to see to go to his house, you go over there and this prophet doesn't come outside, but he sends a messenger to you. The frustration Naaman felt, more and more confusing, more and more conflict, more and more layers of things that Naaman doesn't care about. And here's what it says. But Naaman went away angry. This is verse 11. He went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of his God. He would wave his hand over the spot and he would cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farper, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went off in a rage. Naaman's ready to throw it all away. Naaman's ready to turn and go home because the layers, the steps, the mundane, the complicated, the middle has all become too much for him. And he's ready to go because he thinks he deserves more. And guys, there's a lot of people and students, leading men and women, church attenders, followers of Jesus, who have walked away from faith and the church completely for the same reason Naaman did. Because Naaman had his own expectations of what God should do. So many people have left the church because they have so many expectations of what God should do. And when God didn't do anything the way they thought he should, they walked away from faith. They walked away from the struggle. They left the middle of it all. All because it didn't go the way they thought it would. Naaman says it. He says, I thought that he would. About Elisha. I thought he would surely come out. But it's not up to him. That's the mark being missed. Naaman, because of his title, because of his wealth, because of how high up he is, because of his pride. He's used to getting everything the way he wants it. Anything he wants, he's used to getting it quickly. Does that sound familiar? 
to a, to a group of people who can get anything on Amazon same day or within two days on your doorstep, to anyone who wants something and just goes and gets it. Naaman's just like us. And so when God says, hey, this process isn't immediate, when Elisha says, this isn't going to go the way you think, Elisha's ready to walk, or Naaman's ready to walk away and be done. The middle's become too much for him. But if you keep reading, Naaman has a bold servant. It says this in verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, referring to Naaman, if the prophet had told you to do a great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him to. And his flesh was restored and his body became clean, like that of a young boy. Seven times. That's what it took. Naaman is already frustrated, he's already angry. And when Elisha tells him, all you got to do is go dip yourself in the Jordan seven times. He's like, I got cleaner rivers at home. He's ready to walk away because what God is asking him to do, according to his servant, is just not big enough. It's not grand enough. Church, there are a lot of us that do nothing because we're waiting on God to call us to something extremely big and clear. We're ready for God to pick us up and place us physically in front of the direction we should go so we can start walking. And a lot of us don't walk at all unless he's going to do that for you. But isn't the truth that in his word, God has already laid out all of the ways that we can be obedient and walk. I believe that's true, but we're waiting. We're saying God is going to speak to me someday. And whenever God tells me my purpose, then I'll jump in. Whenever God makes it really clear what I should do, that's when I'll start doing it. But just like this servant said to Naaman, if God told you to do something great, you would do it. But he's already asking you to do something really simple. You just got to go get in the water seven times. Something really simple. Church, we do that a lot. Where we say, it's just not, it's just not big enough for me to get involved. It doesn't seem important enough for me to put my name on it. But can I tell you the impact of the little things you could do that you could, the little things you could put your name on that seems small to you, but the kingdom impact is great. Like maybe for you, you're not doing anything. You're not serving in any way in the church because you're waiting on God to reveal some great purpose to you or some great mission. And I can tell you right now, we have a children's ministry that would love for you to take one small step of obedience and go serve and go sign up to volunteer. Because something small, like a few Sundays a month, where you get to go back and be obedient, a few small Sundays for you could change that student's life, which changes that family's life. They grow up, they teach more and more students and children and friends about who Jesus is. And then you never see the fruits of it, but because you spent a few small Sundays in the back of the church with the kids, more and more generations are going to follow Jesus. Or maybe it's even less than that. Maybe it's serving coffee on a Sunday morning. Being on our coffee team or communion team, plugging, getting plugged in in some way. So many of us are just not doing anything because we want something grand when something small is going to impact the way somebody lives. The statistics about a church and its coffee say that you could bring in a 300 pound man and they could be in that church for the first time. And if they have just a little baby cup of coffee, they automatically feel safer in the building. 
And by doing that, by doing that small thing that's really small to you, that small mundane step that we would love to skip over, that we would love to ignore because we don't want to put our name on something small, we want something big. But by doing that, your kingdom impact is greater than you could ever know, even if you don't see it. Naaman, when he came out of that water the first time, he was still a leper. He goes back in the water, he comes out a second time, he's still a leper. He goes into that water, he comes out a third time, he's still a leper. How many times before you get frustrated and stop? For me, it's the sixth. Because after the sixth time, if I come out after the seventh time and I'm not cleaned, I'm not, I'm not clean as I should be, I'm not cured, that means everything I've done up to this point is worthless. That's my mindset. That's the, that's the brokenness in me. And for you, and for our church, so many of us will serve or get plugged in or will give financially. We'll do all those things one time because we're told to. And then on the other side of it, we'll say, well, God wasn't faithful with it, so I'm not doing it anymore. That doesn't make any sense. God says when we give and when we're generous and when we give our tithes that he blesses us abundantly and he takes care and fulfills our needs. Imagine giving one time and realizing, well, I still have a lot of needs that aren't met. And so you stop giving altogether. That doesn't make sense. There's a certain level of patience we have to have as we're serving obediently and following and what God has called us to. The things that seem small seem big. Because on the seventh time Naaman came out of the water, he wasn't a leper anymore. He found a healing that wasn't just physical but was spiritual. He found more than he could ever know because he stuck with it. Because he kept on going back into the muddy water. And church, it's not like he went in the first time and came out and was a little bit better. And the second time was a little bit better. He didn't get to see all the results each and every time. He came out and was a leper until he fully obeyed the calling on his life from our God. And that's got to be true for us too. Naaman had to get over three things to get through the middle to find the miracle. He had to get over three things about himself. And church, this is true for you and me. If you want to see the other side, if you want to find purpose in the middle... Here are the three things you got to get over. The first thing you got to get over is your pride. We got to drop our pride. Naaman had everything he could ever want. He had the most money he could think of, the most respect. He was feared in all the lands. He was Naaman. That was his name. And that military leader who wore shiny armor had to take all of it off and crawl through the muddy waters of the Jordan to find salvation. And he didn't want to do it. His pride almost stopped him two times. But he had to drop his pride and be obedient in the small things. Next thing he had to drop was his presumptions. We do this all the time. We say, God, I think this is what I need. And you're convinced about it. I'm convinced about it too. God, if you will just do this one thing, fix this one situation exactly how I want it, impact my life in this one way, everything will be good. And then when God does it differently, or when you don't see what he's doing, because all you're looking at is the one way you chose, we walk away completely. We have to drop the assumptions and the presumptions we make about the way God should do his job. I think he's got it covered. When we have faith, we're walking in obedience, even when it's not our way. And finally, we need to pick up some patience. When you're in the middle of it, in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of the pain, 
and the hurt. When you're walking in the valley, you'll stay there a lot longer if you refuse to wait on our God. But you keep moving in steps of obedience. You keep showing up. You keep getting up when you've been knocked down. You keep saying, God, what do you have for me in this situation? No matter how big and grand or how small it might be, you keep on moving forward and you're patient because the other side of patience and obedience is a faith the likes of which you don't know yet. And you may not have seen before. But God uses that. He uses these seasons when we're in the middle to reveal something greater on the other side. But church, we have to be patient. I'll leave you with this verse. This is found in Hebrews 12. The writer of Hebrews says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you remember before Jesus went to the cross, he was in the garden, he was praying, and he prayed to God, he said, God, I pray you would take this cup from me. Jesus said, I don't want to do this. Jesus was in the middle before the miracle. But he said, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus walked through the middle to find the miracle. And on the other side of Jesus' patience, On the other side of Jesus' lack of pride. On the other side of Jesus saying, if this is what you want, I'll do it, no matter what it was. You and I are connected now with our God in heaven again. And we're called to obedience. We're called to the small steps. And maybe for you that's serving, maybe for you that's giving, maybe for you today, it's not about one more small step, but it's about the first step. Maybe today you need to turn your life and heart completely over to God and say, God, I don't know what the middle looks like. I don't know what the future holds. All I know is I want to be obedient and I want to follow you. If you want to make Jesus your Lord and Savior and say, my life has been going one way, I need it to go another way. And I want you to be the Lord of my life who's in charge so I can follow you. If that's an act of obedience you want to make this morning, I'm going to be in the lobby in the back. I would love to talk with you. And I would love to have a conversation about what that has done in my life and how I have seen the fruits of obedience in the lives of our church, the people here. But no matter what, we all have a step to take, a step of obedience. I don't know what it is for each of you, uh, but I do know that standing still because of our pride, standing still because we don't want to, standing still because it's not big enough for us, standing still is not an option anymore, church. We need to take some steps of obedience. Would you pray with me? God, that is our prayer this morning, that you would help us learn how to be more and more obedient to you. God, you have created us each with purpose. You have created us each with ways we can serve your mission in our lives. God, we don't all know what that is, but we do know that on the other side of following you, you're going to reveal a path for us. A path that when we walk it, we won't always see the miracle at the end of the middle, but we will have a certain peace that surpasses understanding because we're following you. God, for the things in our lives, the obstacles, the struggles that are keeping us from following you fully this morning, God, I pray that you would remove those things from our hearts and minds. God, for anything that is keeping somebody from making the decision to follow you this morning, 
whatever the nervousness is or the inadequacy they think they have, God, you've come to take all those things for them. God, would you give them boldness to stand this morning and turn their lives over to you? Because on the other side of that obedience, in the middle of that journey they could start and that we're on, you are still so, so good. And we love you. Thanks for letting us be a part of it. In Jesus' name, amen.